Hello, my name is Steve Bloomfield and this is How to Fix, the weekly podcast from Prospect where we try to fix some of the country's and the world's most pressing problems. This week, it's the listener special. For the 10th episode of How to Fix, we've decided to hand the reins over to you, dear listener. What do you think needs fixing? We've whittled down your suggestions to half a dozen and we've parceled out your queries to a handful of prospect editors, including myself and Steph. So in the next 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, you'll hear Tom Clark discuss the state of the United Kingdom. Samir Rahim wax lyrical on English courses at university. Steph will tell us all about children's health and I'll have a minor rant about sports administration. We'll also talk about the age bias in the arts and discuss the growing distrust in the media. That's all to come on How to Fix. Steph Boland, hello. Hello, I'm feeling ready. You're feeling ready, are you? Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm pumped up for this. Good. We have been, <laughs> <laughs> both of us, sort of, I think it's fair to say, sort of revising heavily for this week's episode because we can't just ask experts, can we? Because we've no. foolishly decided we're to, the to, experts. To take this on ourselves. But this is fine. I think, I think we're going to be fine. We're going to start, Steph, with uh, childhood obesity. And this comes from John on Twitter, uh, who wants to know how we have got into this mess on childhood obesity and how we can possibly fix it. Can I give you some stats first, Steph? You can give me some stats. Okay. Go on. Did you know, these are official government figures, so one assumes they're correct. Uh, one in five <laughs> children in reception, that's when you're four or five years old, are overweight or obese. That figure rises to one in three by year six, that's when they're 10 or 11 years old. Uh, How do we get into this mess? I think it's first important to point out that when we talk about childhood obesity in a crisis, we're talking more generally about children's health. Yes. And I mean, it's not entirely accurate to map that directly onto onto weight. And we know, for instance, that stigmatising children who are overweight is one of the most damaging things you can do. But when we look at children's health, of which um, obesity is a part, there's some really shocking stuff over the past 20 years, I would say. This has become a real problem. Part of it is that children are just not spending as much time outside as they used to. And I think there's a bit of a knee-jerk reaction when we go, that's to do with, you know, video games and sitting down mm-hmm. in front of your PlayStation where you, otherwise you would be out, you know, eating worms yep. and playing football and whatever your generation did. Eating worms? No, look, I wasn't born in the 40s. <laughs> Anyway, crack on. (laughs) But we now know, according to one quite disturbing study that was published in The Guardian, that three quarters of UK children actually spend less time outdoors than prison inmates. One in three is outside for less than half an hour a day. And the reason this is not wholly on parents, it's less time spent outside in school breaks, longer lessons, less running around. Your school playing fields, you remember when this was a big issue? Yes, I do, I do. Mid-late 90s, it was a big issue about everyone selling off school playing grounds. But this is actually a problem. And you also have increasingly parents who work longer hours who aren't necessarily going to go, yes, play out in the street. They're going, can you quietly let yourself in? Or maybe you're with a child minder. Um, And you also have people less likely to walk home. I think a sense of children's safety has come to the fore, whereas we were kind of left outside in all weathers to freeze and or beat each other up. Um, (laughs) But you also really have a problem with children's food. And I think whatever you think of Jamie Oliver, and he's quite a contentious figure, I understand in some circles, um, off the back of selfies being the new sugar. Have you seen this this week? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But let's ignore that. Let's ignore that. The the stuff he said on school dinners 10, 15 years ago, 10 years ago-ish, was quite right. School dinners were, and to a certain extent still are, 
something of a disaster area. They are not brilliantly managed. But the other problem we have is that food in general has become quite a fraught area. Part of that is you have more women in the workplace, so you're less likely to have a parent at home who has the time to dedicate to cooking. So food has got to be quicker. We know that families are spending a lot less time making food than they were 20, 30 years ago. But we also know that the makeup of prepackaged food is particularly poor. Stuffed with salt. And if you have a child at home and you go, well, I can make spaghetti carbonara from a packet and you know give them a piece of fruit afterwards, that's actually quite a responsible choice. What you may not know is that prepackaged carbonara can be really bad for your kid. So... Parents are in a bit of a conundrum on this and schools aren't stepping in where they should be. So we need more outside space for kids. We need a better quality of, uh, of ready-made food because let's, let's face it, you know, for a lot of people, you know, they aren't going to have the time to, to make a dinner. But if the quality and the health of that food is better... Then and if be- that good quality food is affordable, which yes, I think is key. Yes, 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 yes. I also think we need to think about children's mental health and stress levels quite seriously because we are finding that young children are worrying more about exams than they did before anxiety has kind of skyrocketed particularly amongst teenage girls and that urge to go outside play have free time take the time to eat food with your family is sort of disappearing from their schedules I think this is going to deserve a whole show. This is going into a whole and preferably a, you know, government inquiry and change to how we run all of our schools. So we'll do that at the end. We'll (laughs) we'll part this for now and we'll move on. But season two of How to Fix, we may well return to children's health. To children's health. Now I've gone on a bit of a rant. I think it's time for you to have a bit of a rant. Uh, Sports administration. So this came from, uh, from Simon. So it's important to remember that an organisation like FIFA is not really a democracy. It's got representatives from every country in the world, but it is a democracy of dictatorships. See, I've been to FIFA HQ, and so oh, this does not surprise yeah. me at all. Uh, it, it has a very supervillain layer type look. Very much so. <laughs> now, they had, I mean, at the moment, there's a there are various trials going on in the US, which we can't talk much about because they're ongoing into corruption uh, that involves uh, a number of former FIFA executives. You may recall a couple of years ago, there was the big arrest at dawn at the fancy hotel in Switzerland. It was the Hotel du Lac, very lovely hotel. And so there was a sense that maybe FIFA might get cleaned up. It hasn't really. And the reason why it hasn't is because individual national federations vote for who runs FIFA. Those individual national federations are themselves not democratic. So, well, they might be democratic in name, but in reality, they're not. So you're having non-democratic organisations voting for the head of FIFA and for the people who run that, which means that you're not going to get good, upstanding Democrats who are thinking of the the good of the game when you make those decisions. See, I obviously know all about what kind of impact this has, but maybe some of our listeners don't know the ins and outs. So for them, and definitely not for me, but for them, (laughs) what impact does that have on how the game is played? What happens then if you have a corrupt organisation running international football? It means that when the big decisions are made as to which country will host a World Cup, there is no transparency and you end up with decisions like the one to send the World Cup to Qatar in 2022, which made absolutely no sense in terms of is this a place where there are football stadiums? No. 
Is this a place where the climate is okay to play football? No. Is this a place where there are many football fans? No. On every level, it was nuts. But for various reasons, the 24 (laughs) members of the FIFA Executive Committee decided that this was the place where the World Cup should be. The World Cup is, you know, it's worth billions of pounds. It's it's a huge event. It's arguably the biggest sporting event, or at least, you know, second only to uh, to the Olympics. It matters where it is. It matters how it's run. It matters how football is run because it's it's the international game. I think even as well, if you're not a sports fan, you still a World Cup being in your country is a great thing for tourism. It's great for so it's not just football supporters who should care about this you know you could look at it and go well look you know if this organization wants to behave in a corrupt manner does that really matter to me no one's going to starve because of it but let's look at the human rights situation in qatar yeah qatar has been given this world cup there have been a number of reports from human rights watch and amnesty about how the stadiums and the infrastructure is being built Uh, many many people have died making stadiums that footballers are going to be playing in in uh, in five years time that's a problem we can't just sit on the side and go oh well it doesn't really matter where a world cup goes the decision to host the world cup in qatar has led directly to people dying that shouldn't be something that we can just sort of go oh well it's football never mind um and then there's there's the the broader political aspect as well a world cup or an olympic games gives a country soft power it helps boost their image around the world it helped china in 2008 when they hosted the olympics it to a certain extent helped <laughs> russia in 2014 when they hosted the winter olympics They then invaded Ukraine a a few days later, so maybe that wasn't such a win in the long run. These things make a big difference to how countries are seen. So, yes, it does matter how an organisation like FIFA is run. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? Steve, you had one job. (laughs) (laughs) No. So, look, I I know how to fix... um, With FIFA, you need to open up. It needs to be transparent. And it needs also those nations that do claim they're democratic, like our own, like Germany, like the Netherlands, like Italy, like France, uh, like the US, they need to make sure that their football associations are pushing for more transparency, more openness, more democracy. And when it comes down to it, not taking part in this farce. If all these nations decided, you know what, we're not going to go to the World Cup in Qatar, because we believe the way it was given the World Cup was corrupt and it's led to many, many deaths, the World Cup wouldn't take place there. But of course, those federations won't do that. Okay, Steph, I feel like you and I have talked enough. Uh, Let's bring in our special guest number one. It is Samir Rahim, who it says here is managing editor brackets, arts and books, closed brackets, a prospect magazine. Hello, Samir. Hi, the brackets are vital. I'm glad you included those. Uh, now, Samir, we had two things that uh, we wanted to ask you to fix. Uh, the first thing we wanted to talk to you about was English courses in university, of which there's been quite a bit of controversy recently. What is the problem as you see it, and how could it should it be fixed? The problem is being presented as being that it was specifically a, a story about Cambridge University, but I think it has some wider resonance as well. That the English course there didn't have enough writing uh, from around the world or enough ethnic minorities on the curriculum. 
Uh, and the slogan was, you know, decolonize English at Cambridge. It's a bit of a strange phrase in some ways because, you know, it's not as if John Keats went out and invaded your country and stole your resources. He just wrote a few poems. So I was a little slightly troubled by that. But there is actually quite a more serious point. When you're studying, for example, English literature, it might be a good idea to think about other kinds of literature that you can compare with and maybe sort of are derived and are influenced by them. Now, I'm talking uh, personally here because I studied English at Cambridge 15 years ago and there was a foreign language paper which was essentially compulsory for you to do. So you had to study French, Italian, German, Spanish, Latin or Greek literature and you had to study it in the original language and it was an, a, a real challenge and it was one of the most difficult papers and uh, we all complained about it but it was a, a brilliant thing to do um, that's now been dropped so I think the idea that then you wouldn't be studying a language in an, you know it's literature in another language is quite troubling what you should do really is bring that paper back and this is applicable to a all universities, but add languages to that. So, for example, um, why not study Arabic or Japanese or Russian? I mean, these are difficult languages to study, but, you know, Italian's hard as well and French is hard as well. So what you could do then is uh, have a much greater wealth of literature that you could possibly study. Because the problem with saying bring more... Um, world literature into the English course is that then there is a privileging of literature in English mm. that is written from, say, African countries or from India, whilst actually a lot of the best literature in those languages, unsurprisingly, are not in English. Um, so, for example, if you wanted to study Najib Mahfouz's Cairo trilogy, which is, you know, really uh, heavily influenced by the form of the 19th century novel, why not try and study at least a bit of it in Arabic? or Taib Saleh's Season of Migration to the North, which is a Sudanese novel in Arabic, which is heavily influenced by Othello. So essentially, I'm asking students to do a lot more work. Um, <laughs> and You um, had to do it, so they should too. I had to do it. But also, when I, when I first started, you know, there is an issue of, you know, why should it just be European languages? There are enough people in the Oriental Department at Cambridge and other universities to cross-mark or to help out. The idea that you're in a sort of silo where you would only study a particular uh, literature emanating from that country and it's not influenced by other countries seems to me uh, quite strange. So I would, I would advocate for wider but crucially deeper diversity in uh, studying literature. I wanted to also ask you about another topic, which is to do with diversifying literature specifically, because our mutual colleague and friend Joanna Walsh wrote a piece in The Guardian not too long ago about age bias in awards and funding. And I know this is a topic that you've thought about before. What is the problem here? I think Joanna's piece was, was, was quite right, really. The problem is that we have an obsession with young authors and a session with uh, debuts. I even have a problem with the word debut, actually. I always take it out and write first novel. There's something sort of slightly prissy and pretentious about it, a debut, as if they're sort of walking on a it's stage. It's got a kind of musical tinge to it, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, you've just written a novel, OK? Just, it's, <laughs> it's fine. But, you know, Granter's uh, 20 Under 40, The New Yorker's 20 Under 40, the Royal Society of Literature just recently did something where they were calling for, for authors under 40. And it, it seems a bit odd, given that writing is one of those things that tends to come for a lot of writers later on in life. 
um, when they've had a bit more life experience or they simply have the time to, to do it, particularly for, for female writers, particularly in the past, I think maybe. You know, writers like um, Penelope Lively and Muriel Spark didn't publish until uh, they were over 40. The idea that you would have an author in their 20s and it's incredibly exciting and they're quite photogenic and it's, it's amazing and they're young and talented. Often some of those authors, you just wish they'd waited a little bit longer. Emma Klein, The Girls, that novel came out a couple of years ago, starts really well, the first 40 or 50 pages, but then it slightly sort of falls away and you felt like she's in her mid-20s now, maybe she'd waited five years and had more sort of experience in writing and worked on it more, it would have been a better book. So how do you fix it? Do we need a, a prize for best second novel? In fact, there is a prize for best second novel. Oh, really? It's called the Encore Prize, um, which is an excellent thing that should be encouraged. The Turner Prize this year changed their rules so that it used to be the case that you had to be under 50 to win it. I just think just take out all age restrictions from these things and call them new or uh, first novels or promising novelists or whatever. I don't think we need to develop an oldsters category. We just need to change a mindset where obsessing over what the new in literature is sometimes overshadows writers who are building their careers slowly um, like Hilary Mantel for example who wrote six or seven or eight very good novels before she finally became very successful with Wolf Hall. Okay we'll leave it there. Samir thank you. And our final guest on today's special listener edition of How to Fix is our very own editor, Tom Clark. Hello. Hi there. Uh, so, Tom, we have a question from Aaron on Twitter about the state of the union itself. Uh, he asks, can the United Kingdom survive? How do we we fix the UK? I'm assuming he means post-Brexit, Northern Ireland border, Scottish referendum. Wales. Wales. <laughs> we can mention Wales. But yeah, but Wales is fine, isn't Electrify it? Electrify the railways. There we go. Done. Okay, that okay. was fixed. Um, what sort of a mess are we in when it comes to the UK? I think it's in slightly less of a mess than it was a few months ago. It looked like an extraordinary dynamic had set in with the independence referendum in 2014. For years and years, there were opinion polls going back showing, you know, 20 to 30% of Scots, I think, wanted out of the union and never more than that but suddenly they got 45 percent in um, David Cameron's first great referendum gamble and the SNP vote was transformed it went from being something that had a few rural seats to being a completely hegemonic in um, Scottish politics and then the question was how do you go from 45 percent to more than 45 percent and we got the perfect pretext for going um, much more than 45%, which is that Scots overwhelmingly in every single counting region voted to stay in the European Union, whereas um, the rest of the country voted out. And so it looked like there was exactly the reason you'd need to give a load of people that further psychological reason to disengage from England. And yet what's happened in the last year is that the traditional unionist parties have fought back. Is that just to do with the SNP's record in government? Is their stock now falling? Yeah. For years and years, lots of people have been saying, oh, we can't get away with promising free stuff every election and saying all the problems are down to Westminster. But for years and years, they've got away with exactly that and they've done it very well. But I think 10 years in power is quite a long time. 
and you take some knocks and when you take some knocks your causes in this case independence take a knock as well so does this mean then that the uk is fine that actually you know in 20 years time it will still exist in the way it does today there's no need for further devolution or moving towards more of a federal structure are you more optimistic i think that i'd be very nervous about predicting anything any distance out i think there's a clear generational effect with the scottish referendum which went the other way from the Brexit referendum vote across the UK. So young people were much more pro-independence. And I think that does give you a slow-burning problem. I'm not sure what more needs to be devolved. A lot is devolved. Some people worry an awful lot about the scrappiness of the constitutional settlement. You've still got the fact that um, an MP from Dumfries, in some circumstances, might end up having a say on English educational policy in the reverse isn't true um, and people sort of worry that that could become a basis for unpicking it but the thing I'd worry about more than the details of the constitutional settlement is just that young people want out and eventually there'll be more of them and fewer of the old people who hark back to the war. Looking over at Northern Ireland though you have a completely different set of problems right in that they like Scotland voted for Remain Since then, you've had Stormont fail to form a government, this ongoing crisis that's been happening since, is it February? James Brokenshire is now finally instituting direct rule. What is going to happen to Northern Ireland? I think that's a much dicier um, issue in in the short term. You've had some elections in Northern Ireland where we have been inches away from Sinn Féin being the single largest party. And as I understand it, they'd get first dibs on being... First Minister, and that would transform the politics of uh, Northern Ireland. And we've also got a very practical, pressing thing with Brexit, which, unlike Scotland, where they want to be in the single market, but if push comes to shove, they'd obviously rather keep their trade with England, which is much more important for them than their trade with the rest of Europe. When it comes to Northern Ireland, because there's so many industries and even things like farming, where you might have quite conservative populations who are working in a single industry that's integrated on both sides of the border. And if a hard border goes up, you rip that apart and um, people might vote with their wallets to get out of the UK, even people who never thought they would. Just finally, do you think we need some sort of a constitutional committee or... uh group that comes together to discuss uh, how we go forward as a as a nation or as a or as a nation of nations i'd quite like it i mean i i I quite like that kind of thing i think most people aren't that interested in constitutional questions if you look at the appalling turnout in the alternative vote referendum you'll see that that isn't what most people give most of their thought to most of the time i think the thing to watch on this is much more these big changes in sentiment like that slow burning growth of nationalism across the generations and I suppose if there's a case for a constitutional convention it's much more let's get a workable and durable um, constitution in place because that will give you a better chance of muddling your way through the next crisis when it comes because when you've got that sentiment going the wrong way even on a very very gradual generational basis at some point there will be another crisis. Okay, let's move on to our final issue. And Tom, maybe you can stick around for this. Uh, This comes from uh, Jess Abrams, who's formerly of this parish, uh, who wants to know how we fix distrust in the media. Um, I think this is something we can all chip in on. But Steph, your initial thoughts? 
I think back to the how to fix newspapers we did, and particularly when we spoke to Jim Watson of BuzzFeed, and I think mm. our eventual conclusion was that we can't. So that, <laughs> I think that's going to be my, my opening play here. And um, There's a real problem in that news media is increasingly being split, in that you have kind of fast, emotive... In really hyper-engaging content and that's kind of being produced basically for Facebook. And on the other hand you have long exhaustive reports and the middle ground of news is gradually falling away. The temptation then is that the popularity of the former leads you to creating stories that are more and more sensational and we see things like the rise of fake news. Of course, problems with trust in the media kind of predate that in a sense, in that a lot of them are about spin. What we're now seeing is that spin is becoming more and more explicit and visible. So complex set of problems there that I think has much to do with how people read news as how the media produces it. And Tom, there's also the problem, isn't there, of the fact that newspapers, if we stick with newspapers just for the moment, are on the whole losing readers and so are becoming more and more desperate to to try and get clicks, to get more readers. There was this, okay, they're not a newspaper anymore, but The Independent this week was revealed to have claimed that they were showing a spacewalk live when it turned out it was a video of a spacewalk from 2015. And they posted this on their Facebook page as come watch this live spacewalk. You are seeing lots of newspapers getting increasingly desperate to try and get more people, more eyeballs watching their stuff. I mean, yes, and you're seeing news sites like, you know, the Canary paying, as I understand it, the contributors for the number of clicks they get. So you kind of line up what you call the incentives to, to, to make people more and more sensational. And yet there is um, a large number of people out there who do want um, something different and something more balanced. You know, the, the, the circulation over the last year or two of magazines like ours, and not just ours, you know, the, uh, other kind of um, weighty kind of current affairs magazines has tended to go up. And another thing that's happening is this membership model. I was at The Guardian the other day, and they've got now half a million people who they came as regular paying members. Now there's probably 100,000-odd subscribers or something in there. But they've got 400,000 people putting money in their pocket to um, uh, buy the kind of news that they like, even though there's no paywall. And I think that as you're seeing what used to be essentially a public good that was sustained by a cross-subsidy, you're advertising, producing your mid-market news that Steph's saying has now fallen away. Enough people in the public are actually saying that might have fallen away, but I'd quite like it. And maybe we can think that that's the way to fix news is to get people to chip in. On the other hand, one of the newspapers whose circulation is actually up slightly is the Daily Telegraph. And looking at the numbers my immediate read on that is that it's one of the few newspapers that is pro-Brexit amongst a crowded field of not even necessarily left-leaning newspapers, but newspapers which are generally pro-Remain. And I think from that, we don't necessarily go, everyone should be creating kind of Brexit news, but I think there is a bigger question as to whether or not people feel that their sense of the media and political landscape is being reflected in what they're reading. And I don't think we can get away from the fact that the media on a whole called two pretty big things quite badly wrong over the last two years, right? Not Mm. counting the one that they got pretty badly wrong in the US. You meaning the uh, the general election as well as The general election and the referendum. 
Yeah, th- there's some truth in that. I, I think there's also an issue over transparency. I think transparency has actually been a problem for journalism in that 10 years ago, you didn't know what the political editor of a newspaper might think. They were there to report the news. They weren't writing a column. They didn't have opinions. They would write the news. Now you know what their views are because they're on Twitter all the time. And every single journalist on Twitter will will put up an opinion every now and then, some more than others. And I think that then helps to give the impression that uh, these people are not the sort of neutral arbiters of news that they perhaps look like uh, 10, 15 years ago. You also see that they all know each other, you know, a lot of the time. If you're following two journalists and they start talking to each other, you suddenly, you know, you can see how this can appear to be some sort of, you know, cosy cabal of people who, who all talk to each other and all work on the same issues and they all have these views which are, you know, depending on your your own political stance, they, they were really anti-Corbyn or they were really pro-Remain. That sort of thing really helps, you know, build this distrust. I think two potential things that are worth looking at on that note, one is the lobby system, which I think could be changed. For listeners who don't know, a lot of the way political news gets made is that lobby passes are issued to journalists who are then allowed into parts of Westminster to talk to MPs. The idea that there's kind of a club of journalists with this access is quite a controversial one and there are things about diversifying the lobby that I think are worth doing. The other one which is going to become more and more important as we look at the opinions of individual journalists out there is just funding reporting. When I talk to young journalists who are my age or younger, so in their early to mid-twenties, just about, they say that they end up writing a lot of comment writing because they're not being paid enough to go and report. They don't have the opportunities to get out there. And comment you can kind of do in your bedroom with a laptop. So if you are working class or if you're not working on a big paper or if your big paper is not going to give you the cash to get out to other parts of the country, comment is what you end up doing. And if we want news to continue to be sustainable and to produce good stories, people have got to put some money behind those younger journalists. Okay, so we need more money and fewer people on Twitter and more transparency. This feels like a subtweet, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there. Uh, Tom Clark, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There we are. That was six fairly swift how to fixes all in one. Yeah, I think if we just do this every week, we can sort out the country. In <laughs> yeah, no, but this this was this one was a bit more work because you know we had to do all the research. But luckily, we're doing a nice easy topic next week, right? Ah, yes. So next week and the week after, indeed, a two-parter on the thing that we promised at the very beginning we weren't going to do, Brexit. We're going to do how to fix leave and how to create remain. How to, yes. So we'll look at sort of how we can, if we are leaving, how we can leave smoothly. And if we aren't leaving, how we can fix staying, so to speak. Okay, nicely put. Yeah. So we'll do that starting from next week. That is it for this week's edition of How to Fix. My thanks to Tom Clark, Samir Rahim and, of course, Steph Boland. How to Fix was recorded and edited by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio here in the heart of Westminster for further reading. Is there going to be further reading this time, Steph? Uh, I'll put a link to the article about children going outside less than prisoners because it's... (laughs) Yeah, that was weird. It's a good one. (laughs) We'll find further reading. There will be. Okay. Go to prospectmagazine.co.uk slash howtofix. And if you like what you heard, please do us a favour and rate us on iTunes. It really does help. I'm Steve Bloomfield. That was How to Fix. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.